0: holy spirit that you would indeed enable us to behold the wonders of your word that our hearts would be teachable that our minds would have understanding and that our eyes would perceive that which you would have us to know give us wisdom and insight o oh holy spirit i pray that you would come upon me as a minister of the gospel that you would equip me and enable me and empower me that as i preach it would be done in the power of the spirit and not in the flesh and we pray father that through the preaching of the word and through the hearing of the word that you would be magnified here today may our hearts be enlarged may our minds be taught and may we live out what we learn today being not just hearers of the word but doers of the word in jesus name What is the most dangerous thing to the Christian life? What is our greatest threat? What is the greatest danger? Well, of course, we would say sin. Sin is our enemy. Sin is what breaks fellowship between man and God. That's a, that would be the immediate response. But it's deeper than that. It, it, it's what leads to the sin that is our greatest enemy. And what leads to sin is nothing more than doubt. Doubt is our greatest enemy. We live by faith, not by sight, Scripture tells us. We're justified by faith. It is by faith that the Christian lives their life. Faith in Christ and faith in his word. Faith is assaulted and attacked by doubt. And doubt, my friends, is Satan's most powerful tool in subverting God's authority in our lives. Doubt is the scheme of the devil which seeks to undermine Scripture's authority, God's authority, and enabled us to transgress God's word. If we're honest with ourselves, we have doubts many times, more often than we'd like to admit. In fact, it's part of our fallen human nature, as as sinners saved by grace we have both a sinful nature and a new nature the flesh and the spirit and when the flesh is in control doubt overwhelms us doubt can settle into our minds where we begin to wonder can we indeed trust god is god really with us is he all-powerful is he all-knowing is god in our midst does god really love me are my sins truly forgiven Can God really raise the dead? Was there really a virgin birth? Will Christ really come back and bring judgment on the world? Is God just? These are the doubts that swell our mind and we ought not to be surprised because it was the very first thing Satan did in his attack on the human race in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden and enjoying sweet fellowship with God, the Satan didn't come out right off the bat and say, why don't you sin against God? He said, can God be trusted? Did God really say? He, he attacked the credibility. He attacked the integrity. And he attacked the trustworthiness of God. And that's all Satan has to do to get us to sin. Is to make us lose faith. To create doubt that God is true. And that his word is true. The seeds of doubt, when they are planted by Satan, may not hinder us immediately. Those doubts could be planted and over time germinate through the experiences of our life and through the other satanic messages we receive in the world, in the flesh. And, 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 and in that, they become full-born into unbelief. But there is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is Sin. Doubt is that period where we begin to move towards unbelief. Alistair McGrath says this, Doubt is natural within faith. It comes because of our human weakness and frailty. Unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there's no God. It is the deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things which we trust. I have had many doubts in my Christian walk, but I am thankful that God always reassures me that he is true. I am thankful that in the midst of those doubts, my faith is strengthened. It is strengthened by his word. It's strengthened through prayer. It's strengthened by coming to church. It's strengthened by my brothers and sisters. But we must be on our guard. I believe more than ever, we need to be convinced of the certainty that God's word is true. We live in a day where everything is questionable. People do not trust government anymore, right? They've done polls. Do you trust the government? It's at all-time lows. People do not trust the president. They do not trust Congress. They do not trust the Supreme Court. People do not trust the police. People do not trust the news media. We have become a society that has lost trust and confidence in every sphere of authority. And it's in that atmosphere of doubt where we begin to lose faith and trust in the very thing that is absolutely true, and that's God and his word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word abides forever. In recent years, we have seen greater apostasy than ever, not only have i seen it in our own circle and network of churches but even men with major platforms and and public ministries those who i would call quote unquote celebrity pastors and authors have abandoned the faith what is going on today i guess the question should really be are we certain that what we believe is true that's the premise of our sermon today because in Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke is communicating, he is writing to Theophilus, and he's writing to express the purpose of why he wrote his Gospel account. And verse 4 tells us that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. That you may have certainty. Luke wrote his Gospel so that Theophilus, and we'll examine in a minute who he is, may have certainty in the things that he's been taught. And the same could be said to all of us who are hearing his word and reading this word, And God, through the Spirit, inspired Luke to write these things so that we may have certainty. I'm going to get into that in a minute, but it shows us why Luke wrote this gospel. We're going to look at who Luke is why he wrote it, how he wrote it, and why his gospel account is so important. Why was it necessary for Luke to write when Mark was already in existence, when Matthew was already in existence? Why did Luke write his gospel? There was the human element that that he was moved to present this, this gospel account, this biography of Jesus. However, there is something bigger and deeper, and that is the Holy Spirit came upon him and moved him to do it. And I think this is important for us to understand that in divine inspiration, we look at that 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 God is the author of the Bible, it is God's word, but that God uses human authors within their personalities, within their framework, within their abilities to write the very pages of scripture. And that's never overshadowed. The distinctiveness of Luke and Mark and John and Matthew all have a unique quality. They tell the same story. They tell us about Christ. They tell us about his mission. They tell us about his ministry. They tell us about his death and resurrection, but each give a unique perspective from the human vantage point so that God may minister to us in a unique way through each gospel writer. So let's look at our first point of who Luke is and the date and occasion of this. It is universally undisputed that Luke is the author of this book as well as Acts. In fact, in the early church, it is assumed that Luke and Acts comprised of one volume, one large book, and, um, and then it was broken up into two books, the, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Or you could see that uh, Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. In fact, no other gospel writer has a sequel to their story except for Luke. Now, who is Luke? Well, Luke would have known a lot because he was a Gentile convert who had joined Paul's missionary team in Troas. In Acts chapter 16, and we know that Luke is the author of Acts, we begin to see the the we passages, the the first person plural pronoun, we, uh, where he is referring to we, him and Paul, and others who are part of Paul's entourage. Luke was a Gentile, and this is remarkable because God had chosen not a Jewish man, but a Gentile man, a Gentile convert, to write not only one of the Gospel accounts, but combined with Acts, consists of one-third of the New Testament. I want you to think about that. Luke wrote one-third of the New Testament. Uh, Luke has more ink on papyrus than even the Apostle Peter. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes another third of it, and combined, that's two-thirds of our New Testament. Luke's contribution is significant because Luke gives us a very detailed account of everything he wrote. Uh, Those who are not familiar with Jewish traditions, customs, and places, or Old Testament references, he goes into depth to explain. Luke was also a doctor. Colossians 4.14 tells us that Luke was a physician. He was a trained medical doctor. And in in ancient Rome, medical science was not what it is today. But nevertheless, he was an educated man. He was detailed. He was thorough. He was a scientist. And it was evident in his high style of Greek and extensive vocabulary that he was a highly educated man. This would have given him a unique perspective distinct from the other authors of the New Testament. He would see things not only from a medical perspective, but as we'll see, he's a historian. He took great care to note details others would not. Who is he writing to? He is writing to the most excellent Theophilus. Now, there's been debate about what that means. It, uh, some, if you translate the word Theophilus, it literally could mean the, those who love God or the one who is uh, uh, who, who loves God or the beloved God of that one or beloved of God, depending how you translate it. And so some have interpreted that to say that that is a, uh, a, a sort of like an imagery there for the church that it's a name that's used to describe all of God's people and that would be true and that would be a good conclusion except for the fact that he refers to him as most excellent and this was a this was a phrase that was used also in the book of Acts to refer to Felix and Festus who were um, who were Roman officials the term most excellent uh, that phrase was used only to refer to people in high positions in Roman society. And so we can conclude that Theophilus was a patron of Paul, possibly, and of the missionary work of Paul. He was a believer. There were things that he had already been taught, and Luke had compiled this narrative uh, to be more convincing, more compelling, to assure the faith of Theophilus, who perhaps was a Roman uh, 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 official, that he would be established in his faith. However... Like all the letters in the New Testament, they weren't written just to the individuals of the first century. It is God's word written to all of us. And then last but not least, we look at the dating of this letter, most likely in the late 60s to early 70s of the first century. And that is because it had to come after the Gospel of Mark and Matthew. Mark was written prior to the Gospel of Luke, so was Matthew. And we know that because many of the sources in Luke match Uh, word for word in uh, um, Mark, and so we see that there's this uh, reliance as a source text. Um, It is believed that Mark would have been written under the tutelage of Peter. Peter was martyred according to church tradition around AD 65, AD 67, which means that it had to be written before the martyrdom of Peter, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Therefore, Luke's Gospel had to be written afterwards. Now this brings us to our next point, and that is the character of Luke's gospel, because this is what's important, and this is what we have to see, is is what makes his gospel narrative unique. And there are three major characteristics I want to look at. Number one, it's a historical narrative. Uh, The whole prologue here in verses 1 through 4 is actually not unique in and of itself, compared with other historical documents or historicities, that were written in the time uh, those of Josephus and other Greek historians uh, demonstrate that this prologue was very much in line with the prologues of ancient society. It was written in very high, sophisticated Greek. And that proves to us that that Luke is writing this as a a well-documented history. You know, we watch documentaries today, right, where we try to see the history of things or we read history books. That's exactly what Luke is doing here. He is writing not just a gospel narrative, but a history of Jesus Christ. And that, and the detail of it is significant because his details are more so than Mark or Matthew or John. While there is a theological uh, point to Luke's gospel, it is it is written in the very version of being a historical narrative, this idea of having undertaken to compile a narratives of things that have been accomplished. The things that have been accomplished among us is referring to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Gospels about Luke, make, I mean about Jesus, make no mistake about it. This is not a book about someone else. It is about the life of Jesus. It is a, it is a biography. But it is more than just a biography. It is more than just a history. There is a theological purpose to it, as all the gospel narratives are. And it is not only that you may have conviction and be uh, persuaded that it is true, but it is to bring about faith and repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. The language that is used here, as I said, it is the same Greek form that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which means that Luke would have known his writings are tantamount to Scripture. Scripture. It should be noted also that others have already compiled a narrative of these things, as it says in verse 1, in as much as many have undertaken. So it wasn't just Luke who had undertaken this, but it was many who have done it. There were many biographies of Jesus Christ going around and circulating in the first century. And by all means, this would be normal. Who would have been a, a bigger, more popular person than Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, this was the talk of history. This was a pivotal point. And even if you didn't believe in Jesus, everybody knew who he was. There was a significant impact on the life of Jerusalem, the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ was, in fact, the man of the year. He was the man of the century. Even those who didn't believe in him knew him and then knew what impact he had on the lives of people around him. And so therefore, many biographies would have been written, many stories would have been written on him. But the difference is, Luke goes to the sources. As he says to us, he just as those who from the very beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He didn't simply or merely go to man to find out, but he went to those who were eyewitnesses of his majesty, eyewitnesses of his glory, those of the apostles who were still alive, and those who had been exposed to the life and ministry of Christ. So in the undertaking, Luke sees his call to present a meticulous historical record for the certainty of those who believe. What does this tell us? It tells us that Luke is a trustworthy historian. This is an interesting thing, because there are many um, Books that have been written in the first century that we have recovered uh, through archaeology have been passed down a generation. And very few writings from the first century can hold up to historical accuracy. We, we, we discover historical accuracy based on archaeological evidence and historical evidence combined, Now, in the late 19th century, many liberal scholars sought to discredit the Gospel of Luke with historical errors. It was under great attack like much the Bible. That's the devil's work, to cast doubt on the truthfulness of God's word. However, throughout the 20th century, as more archaeological and historical research is being done, Luke was proven to actually be the most reliable historical document from the 1st century. Historians have sometimes been skeptical, and one such man was William Mitchell Ramsay. He was a British atheist historian. He set out to debunk the truth claims of the Gospels. He decided to follow the alleged footsteps of the Apostle Paul through his missionary journeys, going to all the places that archaeologists have examined. What was the result? Dr. Ramsay was converted to Christianity along the way. He would have been the... Lee Strobel of his day, because he discovered that every time a spade of dirt was turned over in those days, some historical aspect of the Gospels was verified and authenticated. William Mitchell Ramsey says this of Luke, quote, Luke is a historian of the finest rank. Not merely are his statements trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense, the important and critical events, and shows their true nature at great length while he touches lightly or omits entirely that which was valueless to his purpose. In short, he is one of the world's greatest historians. 20th century historian Otto Piper says this, whatever modern scholarship has been able to check up on the accuracy of Luke's work, the judgment is unanimous. He is one of the finest and ablest historians in the ancient world. And so we can say here that Luke is an accurate historian. His records there, and we see many of them, like in chapter 2, if you turn one page over, uh, verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinrinus was the governor of Syria. No one else in the gospel accounts records this fine detail of history but Luke and the evidence has borne out that he was 100% correct. This is important, guys. It's important because if it could be proven that Luke's historical account was inaccurate, then we have reason to doubt the infallibility of Scripture. If it could be proven that Luke is lying, if it could be proven that he's in error, then we have reason to distrust Scripture. If we can't believe him on the detail of a Roman census or who's governor, how could we trust him on something like the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ? Facts matter. Truth matters. And God's word is inerrant. Number two, second characteristics of Luke's gospel, it is thoroughly researched. Thoroughly researched. I went to seminary. I had to take seminary courses. I had to write 30-page books term papers. If you've never written a paper of that length, it requires thorough research. Five, six books, cross-referencing, quoting. It, it's it's an incredible amount of labor to produce a term paper in college, and anyone here who's worked on an undergrad or a graduate degree level work knows the amount of research that goes into it. Luke was an educated man, and he did a tremendous amount of research. Going back to Verse 2, just as those who for, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He's referring to the apostles. He's referring to those who not only had seen Christ, but, but were witnesses. They preached the gospel. They were, they were ministers of the word. Verse 3 tells us something very important. It seemed good to me, this is Luke saying, having followed all things closely for some time past. That phrase, following all things closely, literally means in the Greek to track down, to investigate. Based on his own admission, Luke was not an eyewitness of what he narrates, but he did his research. He presents to us a Gospel account with more detail than any of the other Gospels. Phil Reichen in his commentary says this, if Mark was a storyteller and John was a philosopher, then Luke was an investigative reporter. The results of his research is a rich account of the person work of Christ. With a doctor's gift of observation, Luke noticed things others have overlooked. He is the most complete gospel. Luke did the work that any good investigative journalist would do. He did the research. He asked the questions who, what, why, when, where. He went to the people. Now it's believed that This was all accomplished during Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea. When Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, he was transferred to Caesarea and he was detained there for two years until he would go to Rome to face trial before Caesar. And in Caesarea, we know about the trials between Felix and Festus. It would have been that time that Luke was with Paul. We know that from the book of Acts, that he was with Paul during his imprisonment. He wasn't imprisoned, but he was there to serve Paul in his imprisonment. And so he would have been living in Palestine. He would have been living in the area where he would have had access to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He would have had access to the brothers of Jesus. He would have had access to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, which is why we have the narrative of the birth of John the Baptist and a detailed narrative of the birth of Christ that the other gospels do not give us. The whole story of of the the nativity is really 100% coming out of Luke. We get a few details from Mark and a, a, a little more details out of Matthew, but most of it comes from Luke. There's no doubt in my mind that he interviewed Elizabeth and Mary and copied down copious notes to communicate to us in this narrative we, we have uh, uh, parables that are in the gospel of luke that that the other gospel accounts don't have like the the parable of the good samaritan the parable of the prodigal son the parable of the lost coin the parable of the wise steward w- where did luke get these narratives he got them otherwise from sources other than matthew and mark and john comes much later Only Luke gives us a glimpse to the two sisters from Bethany, Mary and Martha, before Lazarus dies. And Luke alone tells us about the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Luke did his research, and it shows. It shows here, and it tells us something about divine inspiration, that while it is true, God divinely inspires the work, God never overrides the human personality and effort to put scripture into writing. Men are carried along by the Holy Spirit, but the man still does the work. The man still writes the text. Luke did his work. He studied, he researched, and the end result is the word of God. Thirdly, Luke's account is well-organized. Luke's account is well organized he says this in verse second half of verse 3 he's I following all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you so he writes an orderly account now each gospel narrative has its own layout its own structure um, Mark and Matthew tend to kind of be just disjointed it's not uh, it doesn't follow a clear structure. John has a very theological structure to his gospel account. Luke's is organized, and that word uh, orderly account in the Greek literally means chronologically. What he's saying, I'm writing a history for you, I'm writing... And, and Luke's gospel follows the life of Christ in the most chronological format. There are a couple occasions where some things may be before the other, chronologically speaking but it does follow from the birth of Christ to the resurrection and ascension of Christ, a a timeline. It's It's a history of the life and ministry of Jesus. It is very well organized. And scholars who have studied this are amazed at the incredible structure to the narrative. How did he decide to arrange it? What did he decide to include? What did he decide to leave out? These are all good questions. But we know that the Holy Spirit... Moved him. We can also present a basic structure here today. And the structure can be broken down into three basic parts of Luke. Chapters 1 through 3 present the birth narratives of John and Jesus and the preparation of Christ's ministry, going into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And then chapters 4, 17 through verse 20, chapter 21 describe to us the ministry of Christ. And then finally, the third part, and that begins from Luke 19 to, um, to the end of the book, to chapter 24, shows us when Jesus came to Jerusalem, his persecution, his death, burial, resurrection. If we can encapsulate one verse, if there's one verse that we could take out of Luke's gospel that summarizes the theme of what Luke's trying to say, it's coming out of chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That one verse summarizes everything in Luke's gospel. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man is a messianic title. It goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, when Daniel speaks of the Ancient of Days prophecy. And one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds This was the term that Jesus most often referred to himself as the Son of Man, demonstrating that he knew he was fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel as the coming Messiah promised to Israel. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Those three basically fit the structural pattern. Chapters one through three, the birth narrative, the Son of Man came. It tells us how he came. He didn't come in the clouds, he returns in the clouds, But he came born of a virgin through the the conceiving of the Holy Spirit. He was born in a manger. He was born uh, in humility. And yet it was in the natural birth of a woman. He was born under the law. He came to save those who were under the law. We see the development of Jesus as a child. And Luke tells us he grew in stature and wisdom. We learn that Christ came not only to be baptized by John the Baptist, but then tempted Uh, for 40 days by satan in the wilderness Uh, christ came into this world as a man the son of man came and that's chapters 1 through 3 then we can look at chapters 4 through 21 as the seeking right he came to what seek the lost and throughout his preaching and teaching and healing ministry we see that christ is reaching sinners That's something that really is important also as a major theme in Luke's gospel is that the seeking of the Son of Man is to seek sinners. Paul tells us Christ came to save sinners of which I am the foremost. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke's gospel chapter 4 because this is where the seeking narrative begins. And it begins with Jesus in Nazareth after he After he comes back from being tempted in the wilderness, we read that he returns to Nazareth and he reads from the scripture. Look at me in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set all liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What a a beautiful passage here that is, is being quoted for us. And it's a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 61. And in that prophecy, we see that the mission of Messiah is to What? Proclaim liberty to the captives. Who are the captives? Those who are slaves to sin, to recover the sight of the blind. To Who's the blind? Those who are blind to the glory of Christ. To set liberty, those who are oppressed, those who are oppressed by the darkness of sin, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20 says, He rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendants and sat down. I love this. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And look at verse 21. And he said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They marveled. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come to proclaim the Lord's favor, to seek and save the lost. And from that point on, it is a rescue mission We see whether it's the healings that take place, the calling of the disciples in proclaiming himself the Lord of the Sabbath, questions of fasting. Everything that Jesus did there is to seek and save the lost. His teaching, his parables are to seek and save the lost. And then in chapters 22 through 23, we see Not only does he seek them, but he saves them. How does he save them? Through his death and resurrection. How does he save us? The Son of Man lays his life down for us. He gave his life. He gave himself to be crucified so that he would be our sin bearer, so that we would find forgiveness and redemption. And he conquered death. He rose from the grave. So the story ends and concludes with Christ's saving work: The Son of Man came. We see his ministry in chapters four through nine in Galilee. From Luke 9:51 on, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. From chapters 10 to 19, we read about the Son of Man and the rejection of the Son of Man, and then 20 through 24, the salvation of the Son of Man. And so Luke's account is written in an orderly fashion. It is very easy to follow. It is very easy to understand. And then finally, I add this not as a fourth characteristic, but it tells us the purpose that you may have certainty for the things that you've been taught. Theophilus had already been taught concerning the kingdom of God. Perhaps a disciple through Paul's missionary work, perhaps being saved in one of the church plants that were planted by him in Barnabas. Theophilus was a man who had come to faith in Christ. He trusted in Christ, but maybe doubt had filled him. Maybe he was questioning the veracity of the claims of the gospel and the claims of Christ. So Luke writes to him that he may have certainty that his doubt would be evaporated. Let me bring out some themes that are unique to Luke in the coming weeks and months as we go through this, that I think are important concerning the things that we've been taught. Number one is the fulfillment of God's plan. Number one is the fulfillment of God's plan. Luke insists that God is working out his purposes in human history, first through Christ and then through the church, the book of Acts. God has fulfilled his long promised plan to Abraham through Moses, through the Old Testament church and that was fulfilled in Christ Jesus who was the seed of Abraham and through him all nations would be blessed. And that is emphasized in Luke's gospel through the frequent use of the Greek word day, D-E-I day). It means literally it is necessary. Thus the child of Jesus must be or it is necessary that he be in his father's house. Chapter 2, verse 49. It was necessary that Christ should suffer and enter his glory. Chapter 24, 26. And in chapter 24, 44, everything that about Jesus must be fulfilled according to the scriptures. It must be done. It must be done. It is necessary. It was necessary that Christ would be the one to fulfill all the promises of God in the Old Testament. Secondly, another major theme we'll see is the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. We know that is powerfully demonstrated to us in the book of Acts. Luke's gospel reveals many ways that the Holy Spirit was at work. For example, the Spirit's work is clearly described in the miraculous birth of Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary. It was the Holy Spirit um, who gave gave, uh, the miracle to um, Zacharias and Elizabeth to have John. It was the Holy Spirit who filled John when he was in the womb, and he jumped with joy when he heard Mary's voice. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Jesus himself rejoices in the Spirit. Chapter 10, verse 21. And later, Jesus promises his disciples the presence of the Spirit in their time of need in chapter 12, 12, and 24, 49. Jesus' promises regarding the Holy Spirit are clearly fulfilled and witnessed in Luke's second volume, Acts. Another major theme in Luke's gospel is that the kingdom of God is a kingdom for outcasts. It is a kingdom for outcasts. It is a major theme in Luke's gospel, God's care for people who were considered insignificant in the society of that time. Specifically, this referred to women And children, the poor, and the disreputable sinners. Luke thus gives a prominent place to women in his gospel. Throughout his gospel narrative, we see the women who surrounded themselves in Jesus' public ministry, ministering to him, ministering the gospel, and cooperating, collaborating with the apostles. Uh, Luke is the only writer who records a scene from Jesus' childhood when he's in the temple. He shows Jesus proclaiming good news to the poor, as we just read in chapter 4 and 18, and blessing them while pronouncing a woe in Luke 6.20. He writes about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, even like Zacchaeus in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, a man who was despised and hated by everyone in his community. Jesus decided to sit down and have dinner with him and preach the good news of the kingdom. In fact, the theme could be referred to in Luke's gospel as the great reversal. God exalts the humble, and he humbles the proud. It is a great reversal. Those who are rich are truly poor. Those who are poor are rich. God flips the world's values on its head. Mary sings about God bringing down the mighty and exalting the humble in chapter 2, verse 52. In the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, it's the tax collector who's justified in the sight of God. and It's the Pharisee and his righteousness who's rejected. The beggar Lazarus in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man is carried off to paradise while the rich man ends up in hell. And it's the Samaritan, the person who is least respected in Jewish culture, who cares for the man in need who was beaten on the road, not the Jewish priest or the Levite. And finally, the final theme that we look at, and as many, is going to be the danger of riches. Of all four gospel writers, Luke has the most to say about wealth, poverty, and the danger of riches. For example, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Jesus not only pronounces a blessing on the poor, but pronounces a curse on the rich. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. No other gospel account do we see the picture of Jesus instructing us to be rich towards the kingdom and not towards the material possessions of this world. Luke alone gives us the parable of the foolish rich man who says, I have plenty in my barns, let me eat, drink, and be merry. And The Bible says he was not rich towards God, but only looking to satisfy himself and at night his soul was required of him however it would be a profound mistake to see Luke as merely an evangelist against the rich he is more accurately an evangelist to the rich Zacchaeus was a rich man he made a lot of money pilfering his funds of tax collecting but he was converted and he came to Christ and became a disciple And so this is a rich gospel. There's a lot that's in here. And I am really excited about going through this verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and unpacking what God says to us. But I want to conclude with this question. The question is, do you believe that the Bible is God's holy word? The purpose of this writing and the purpose of all of Scripture is that you may be of certainty, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to give you three things to think about in closing today concerning the trustworthiness of the Bible. Number one, the Bible contains 66 books written by 40 different authors in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years and together they paint a picture of a story that revolves around God creating man and woman in his image, sinning against God, and then making a way to save them by his grace through the death and resurrection of Christ. There is coherency and there is cogency uh, throughout scripture that as you read it, you say this was written by one person because it was inspired by God. Number two, we base our knowledge of world history on writings where we have a handful of manuscripts, right? Nobody doubts that some of the letters that George Washington wrote are true. Nobody doubts that Homer's Odyssey uh, was written and in, 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 in doubt the veracity of those texts. Guys, we have over 5,000 full or partial manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, and every year more texts are found. No other book, from the ancient world, has that many manuscripts to see how this all adds up. God preserves his word for us. And finally, the Bible contains thousands of prophecies fulfilled with uncanny precision, including 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament written hundreds of years before Christ that predicted his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The odds of this happening, by chance, are less than 1 in 2,000 zeros. In the words of R.C. Sproul, the very dimension of the sheer fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament scriptures should be enough to convince anyone that we are dealing with a supernatural piece of literature. But more importantly than all of that, all the facts in the world can't convince someone something's true there's only one thing that will convince us ultimately, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. Unless the Holy Spirit opens your heart and the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see, we will always be blinded by the darkness of sin in this world. What tells us that the word of God is true? It's the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, bearing witness that this is his word. Nothing could change that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word today. We thank you for its trustworthiness. We are certain, O oh Lord, we are certain that it is true. And we humble ourselves before you this morning, submitting ourselves to your word, submitting to these truths, and asking you that you would be with us to give us great insight and wisdom as we go through the gospel of Luke. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank <laughs> you.